0: The old world is dying, the new world struggles to be born, now is the time of monsters. So what better time to talk about a vanity novel by a tyrant's boot boy? This is the sixth episode of the Reading in the Time of Monsters podcast. I'm your host, Peter, and today we will be discussing almost zero... A novel by Vladimir Surkov, and we will talk some about who he is, why I'm reading him. But first, we will do our self crit. The self crit I do every episode to hold myself accountable. Uh, the first is a little bit of self praise, in that uh, I'm told that our last episode, that monster episode with our wonderful first guest, Kit had pretty good audio quality. I think I found a reasonably good audio modality. I did a small amount of audio editing when our recording got interrupted and I downloaded free or not quite free audio software and, and pushed them together seemingly relatively smoothly. Perhaps I will someday learn to edit out aws and ums. I don't think today is that day, but it might come. I will say that we covered quite a lot in that episode, it was quite long. We discussed a book. We discussed what that book might might mean, a subgenre, the new chosen were new chosen one narrative that Kit outlined that the book might belong to. Somebody in a Discord I'm in discussed how important it is that the new chosen one is sort of descended from these work within the system to change it narratives that are so familiar to us from primarily progressive politics, and that the new chosen one narrative, where the chosen one goes into the system with ambivalent intent, perhaps wants to change it for the better, perhaps wants to sabotage it, but winds up being the only one who holds the fate of the system in which they have been marginalized in their hands. I do think that's an interesting development and one that's worth striking out more, perhaps we'll have kid on again. In any event, uh, I thank you for, for hanging, for hanging with me, uh, hanging with us for that long episode. I'm going to uh, try not to do uh, such, well, I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll keep on doing long episodes. We'll, we'll see. In any event, let's move on to Almost Zero by Vladif- that Vladislav Surkov, uh, published in 2010. So the reason I read this one is because a friend of mine who subscribes to Melendia Avenue Review, the parent newsletter of this podcast at the chieftain level, wanted me to have a look at it. Now, if you're a Melendia Avenue Re- Review chieftain, you pay more considerably more than the citizens who pay a little but among other benefits you get to recommend me one book a year uh that within reason as long as i can read it and source it and whatever that it has to be in english various other rules and regulations under a hundred thousand words preferably uh that i will i will read one of your books and talk about it uh, currently, the price for being a ach- the price for that, considering what it is, is actually pretty low presently. So I think maybe I have another 10 or so chieftain slots left at its current price. And after that, I'm going to jack the prices up some because I don't want, I don't want some oligarch to come around, buy however many, you know, 50 odd chieftain subscriptions and make me his personal reading servant. Because uh, that'd be pretty weird. But this friend was curious about Vladislav Surkov and his literary ambitions. And that's worth there, – there, there's a good reason for that. Because Surkov is a Kremlin guy. He's uh, considered to be one of the people who has constructed contemporary Russia's managed democracy, as it's called, and as I believe Surkov has called it himself. This is where the appearances of democracy are observed. People file into the voting booth and cast their ballots. There's a parliament, judges, and so on, that these appearances are observed, but the state from the position of the Supreme Executive sort of licenses everyone involved, including having what amount to licensed dissidents and quashes any kind of independent political action. Uh, In particular, Surkov is seen as a master orchestrator of Russian media and of public opinion uh, details on what exactly he does for the state are actually a little bit sketchy in English language sources. I admit I didn't, uh, you know, delve too deeply into it, but it, everyone agree, seems to agree that he's kind of sinister, maybe a mega Carl Rove type figure to cast back to the U S in the, first decade of the 21st century younger born in the 60s he got involved in various uh, business enterprises as russia acquired capitalism in the 90s and that influenced some of what we'll see in his novel here and he somehow got connected in with putin and the Siloviki. he's not an ex-kgb guy he's just uh a, a political fixer basically someone who got in uh through uh, business politics as far as i could tell during the kind of wild west era of 90s uh, transition to capitalism Moscow. i mean wild west doesn't get across what a disaster it was or i mean the wild west was a disaster for some people but uh surkov seems to revel in the attention he's been given as one of the supposed you know powers behind the throne of putin's russia Probably some of that's exaggerated there. There seem to be a number of people that the Western media kind of gloms on to, to take these sort of stock roles in Putin's regime and how accurate any of that is, is up for question. He was banned from entering the U.S. in 2014. He was linked to uh, pro-Russian elements during the Euromaidan crisis in the Ukraine, and when asked, about, when asked about this, Serkov reportedly responded, The only things I want from America are Tupac, Allen Ginsberg, and Jackson Pollock, and I don't need to go to America to access their work. It's not quite as good of a burn as that Iranian cleric, who after Trump ordered the assassination of one of their generals, uh, Soleimani, said, you know, what hero are we going to assassinate in response? SpongeBob? But, you know, okay, burn as far as it goes. Not not as good as that Iranian one, though. So as that quote illustrates, Surkov uh, reckons himself a man with an interest in culture. And we can see this in his attempts at a literary career. So observers of Russian literature appear to be quite certain that the novels including Almost Zero, written under the name of Nathan Dubovitsky, uh, are in fact written by Surkov. Uh, the Kremlin officially denies this, supposedly. Uh, Surkov uh, actually wrote the introduction uh, for Almost Zero. Oh, maybe it was written in 2009. Sorry, it's 2009. Or two, maybe the translation I have is from 2010. Uh, I have another note here saying 2009, but either way around that period. But Surkov wrote the introduction for it. He hails Almost Zero as the best book he's ever read. Um, But he's in, you know, the business of saying ludicrous things like that Putin's system is more democratic than those in the West. And, I mean, you all know probably that I'm a critic of the democratic pretenses of our capitalist states, but that's a little silly. But he says these things with a straight face, and that's more or less his job. So uh, in any event, I had a look at this book clearly it's kind of a appropriate time uh to look at it which is probably why my friend wanted me to have a look we have the ongoing war in the ukraine going on and there's this wrangle that all of us have in trying to understand russia's place in the world you see these reactions like this really pretty noxious essay by uh i believe uh, first name elef batuman fairly prominent writer. I've not read any of her work. I'll probably get around to it one of these days, but a novelist and a critic who studies Russian literature and did this sort of, well, is it or isn't it okay to enjoy Russian literature, you know, uh, with all of its imperialistic pretenses. And you have considerably stronger condemnations than that of Russian culture as a whole, which just to be absolutely clear, I 100% disagree with. I think there's no reason not to read and enjoy works by Russians, even if even if in theory they're Putinites. Because you know, sometimes people with terrible ideologies write great work. I think it's you know you can make an argument that paying them money for it might not be great, but I don't think I'm exactly enriching Serkov here. Uh, and if he, if I am, it's by a very small amount of money. I think that. Also, the whole Russian literary tradition, whatever else it is, is actually pretty critical of Russian politics. That seems to be one of its major themes. And also, if you're going to just go around boycotting the literature of every country that has done bad things in this world, we all know where that would wind up in. So uh, that's out as far as I'm concerned. But I do think it's worth thinking about uh, how we un- how we go about understanding Russia just uh, not because it's so mysterious, but because it is, at least from my perspective, another country with a different language and a different culture. And there's more ideas, good, bad, and indifferent, mostly bad, it seems, flying around the sphere about it in a number of different directions. Uh, the idea that we shouldn't interact with Russian culture, I think, is a terrible idea uh the idea that russia is somehow uniquely sinister is is to my mind utterly foolish and bigoted basically i think it's a i i do think that's a form of bigotry essentially so that's nonsense from one direction from another direction was a sort of mental trap that i saw and to a certain extent still do see a lot of critics of American imperialism fall into. And I fell into that trap as well. And so I, I guess the trap is this. I thought that Putin uh, was a bad guy. And I still think that just like, I think that Assad's a bad guy and the leadership of Iran are bad guys and the leadership of the people's Republic of China are bad guys. I don't think I never thought they were good guys. I'm not that kind of credulous anti-imperialist who thinks that anyone who opposes the U.S. is automatically good. But I think I had gotten the idea that the likes of Putin or uh, Xi were at least rational bad guys. When they did bad stuff, it was according to a rational playbook of self-aggrandizement through national aggrandizement and that they had some basic concept of means and rationality that bore connection to some version of facts on the ground. That seemed to me to be, and I think to a lot of people who pay attention to this stuff, to be a noted distinction to a lot of the American leadership class, who really seem to think that they can manufacture facts out of ideology and self-confidence, And appear to often be willfully ignorant of the world around them as someone who grew up during the Iraq War, which we're now uh, close, we we just passed the 20th anniversary of when the U.S. went to Iraq. It's difficult to overstate how senseless and irrational that war was. Uh, So other powers that didn't do stuff like that seemed Okay, maybe they're not great, but they're at least rational. And Putin especially seemed to play his cards pretty well in places like Chechnya and Syria. I'm not saying he did good things there. He was brutal and did did bad things, but he was smart. He got what he wanted pretty cheaply, which is a really substantial contradistinction to the huge, loud, expensive disasters that my country, the United States, has gotten itself into abroad in my lifetime. And I also think a lot of us wanted this to be true, right? A lot of anti-imperialists. I think it was a way of showing up the stupidity of the American ruling class and the Western ruling classes more broadly. And it had a nice irony to it. It ran counter to these narratives that are put out there by establishment sources who like to characterize every leader that Washington doesn't like as basically a comic book villain. Uh, I think the idea was if you can't find a good guy to root for, and there really seem to be very few good guys in this world, certainly at high-level power politics, you could at least kind of follow along and admire the plays of your saner villains who did clever things, right? The crazy guys, the ones who that we really didn't like, were the ones who lit an arc of fire from Libya to Afghanistan, who pretended like they were the proverbial adults in the room. And they're the ones we were stuck with right that that we're intimate with we understand their language it, i mean literally right i i don't speak or read russian uh, or chinese or arabic so i can't I, I only get what the leaders of countries that speak those languages say in translation whereas i get all the nuance of the american and british rulership class when it speaks and it's unpleasant we're we're intimate with them from living with them and they in some sense represent us and and we don't like that nope i don't like that intimacy breeds contempt and we weren't as close to someone like putin but then the russian invasion of ukraine i think scotches that hypothesis uh this is based on anecdotal evidence but most of the people who i knew myself included who saw putin as a sane tyrant who who was bad but did things for a reason. Thought he wasn't going to do it when the war talk started in winter of 2022. I think I figured at most he'd occupied Donbass. But no, he launched a big, stupid, terrible, bloody invasion. If he ever was a sane bad guy, and I'm not sure he was, because I really don't know enough. Uh, he's not that guy anymore. He's, you know, just as bad as our leadership so i think we should get back to the book um because i think that reading almost zero shows another facet of this that ultimately the the ruling class is the ruling class wherever you go and they're not that different from each other that there are no adults in the room above the foolishness of our leaders or whichever leaders we don't like uh I had never articulated this assumption, even in my mind, but I think uh, if you had had said to me, oh, well, would a Kremlin person write the kind of profoundly self-indulgent, sloppy, pointless books that American elites sometimes do? I would say no. American elites do write those kind of books, right? They write dumb little manifestos. They write their campaign books. They, they write their memoirs once they're a little bit out of office, and they're full of cliches and nonsense. Uh, sometimes they write works of fiction. I guess Bill Clinton sat down with James Patterson to write some mysteries, which I haven't read. Uh, the, there was a really bad one called 2034, which was a novel predicting a World War III with China, Iran, and Russia in the titular year, 2034, by uh, ex-Spook and Tufts guy, elliot ackerman and admiral uh jim stavridis i wrote a review of it um i'm gonna i'll include it in the show notes a link to it uh you could tell he thinks that he's like you know especially ackerman right uh you could tell he thinks that he's kind of this hot shit man of action man of letters you know like uh, i don't know peter matheson or something but his prose sucks and his ideas suck uh i don't know what stavridis bought, brought to the table other than a name Uh, They also failed to be kind of pulp fun, like the descriptions of the war were all pretty boring. They were more like sales catalog descriptions for various weapon systems. And I didn't think this necessarily at the time, but if you brought it up to me, if someone said, hey, what's the Russian equivalent of this? I would say, oh, you know, Russian leaders, they don't feel the need to flap their gums, right? As much as the American leadership class, they don't need to go on master class like Bush and did Obama do it too? Or Clinton? I don't remember. But they don't need to go on master class to teach classes about leadership, right? They're not at that self-important. Surely they'd be content to just reap the benefits of their positions, the power, the money, and a relatively competent discretion. But no, Vladislav Surkov is a guy who thinks he has something to say. So Almost Zero, his, uh, his novel, is the story of one Yegor. Igor basically does uh, what Surkov does for Putin, but Igor does it for a regional governor within Russia instead of the head honcho, so basically Surkov at at more of a mid-career level. I guess it would be too obvious if Surkov gave his narrator the same job as himself, or maybe there would be even less dramatic tension in this stupid book if Igor had the kind of power Surkov has. Because for the most part, Igor just kind of gets, he just accomplishes things without really doing much to accomplish them in this book. So we see him uh, massaging his governor's reputation uh, by doing stuff like getting an old gay drunk poet to ghostwrite a volume of poetry for the governor. Because in Russia, I guess they take poetry, poetry is considered cooler over there than it is here, which is good for them. But, uh, you know. He also bribes newspapers for good coverage. This includes supposed opposition newspapers. It's all presented as though it's like really slick shit, you know, real coup de gras for this political wire puller. But really, it seems like political manipulation 101 that even an American could manage. though they probably wouldn't bother with poetry, given the cultural differences. Um, there's some efforts at a kind of like, I don't know, surrealism, I guess you could say. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Surkov is a fan of Bret East and Ellis, right? Surkov's the right age for that. His other uh, declared interest in American culture would seem to fit with an admiration for Ellis. And even the title of the novel recalls the title of Ellis's first novel, which was Less Than Zero. And it also has that kind of studied cynicism to it that Ellis is known for. Uh, for what it's worth, I would say there's a little bit more going on, plot-wise in less than, uh, uh, in almost zero. Uh Sirkov has to, you know, manage these various political issues for his principal, and he also does flashbacks where he tells a story of how he got, of how Igor, rather, uh got involved in this kind of political fixing in the first place, right? He went to Moscow in the early 90s, and he joined a literary mafia. But, you know, a literal literary mafia, right? Not, you know, when people say literary mafia, they mostly mean a bunch of Kind of catty, mean writers and editors, but this was a real literary mafia, which actually kills people and has, like, you know, cool hierarchy. And I don't recall if they mentioned having tattoos, but, you know, they regulate the trade and anything that has written words, books, magazines, you know, recipes, uh, maps, whatever. Um, and, and they control that trade, right? They become the mafia of that trade. Uh, something something, controlling reality by controlling expression, blah, 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 you get the picture. Uh, these gestures towards surrealism and plot are arguably points in Serkov's favor, but Brett Easton Ellis uh, has an actual editor in his favor. It probably doesn't help that Almost Zero was translated from the Russian by a small press, but still, it's it's just kind of sloppy, poorly written. Um, Ellis and some critical boosters of Ellis insist that uh, his works make no point. They have no viewpoint. They're merely literary artifacts or mirrors held up to society. I've actually been reading a work of criticism that makes that argument about transgressive fiction in general. Uh, That's a foolish thing to say. Uh, and, And, you know, that's one of my main criticisms of Gen X literature in general, that it pretends to this pure point of view. Uh, that has no history or politics to it, but we all know that that's bunk and they should have known at the time. But truth be told, I have to say I prefer the Gen X literary brat as a literary brat rather than a Gen X literary brat as someone who thinks he has something to say and thinks he's a political actor, right? Because Ellis is a Gen X literary brat who knows he's a Gen X literary brat Uh, and you can contrast his novels, which are overrated, Uh, but occasionally have something of merit in them um, to his Twitter presence, right? Where he thinks he has something to say all of a sudden and he doesn't. Whereas Surkov always thinks he has something to say, always thinks he's the main actor, the guy who gets it where others don't in the real world, right? And he has this politics of, uh, you know, uh, A, of dedication to Russia, uh, and B, of that he's the wire puller, uh, and that it's men like him who actually run things. So he mates the kind of affected cynicism and literary artificiality with a dumb plot about Igor trying to figure out the possible murder of a woman in a movie that Igor saw about her own murder. Yo, uh, I mean, think about that, man. Isn't that that postmodern? Isn't that crazy? It's kinda of like if um Lesson Zero's Clay tried to save that tween sex slave that we see at the culmination of the, you know, kind of contrived hall of horrors that Alice puts in front of us in Lesson Zero. Uh w- would the book be better if Clay tried that? Would it be worse? I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to really care. I don't think it would have been that much better. You have to figure that Serkov gives his author substitute more agency than Ellis gives his in Lesson Zero, at least in part because of how he regards himself and his role in the world. Right? Serkov is a player, and he certainly sees himself as a player, and so is his analog in the novel. Even if Igor experiences more or less the same angst as the agency-less Clay in Lesson Zero or any of other any of, El- or at least most of Ellis's other novels. You could argue that Patrick Bateman in American Psycho has all of the is the only person with agency in the world, but all of his agency, provided you think he's actually doing all these things and that they aren't fantasies, which you know, there's a pretty good reason to believe that the murders and what have you that Patrick Bateman commits in American Psycho are all supposed to be fantasies, but however much agency he has or thinks he has, he still can't actually accomplish anything. Uh, I guess you could chalk it up to culture, right? There's this more activist concept of masculinity in Russia. Your your manhood is tied to your ability to do stuff. It's not considered unmanly to be an artsy writer in Russia like it is in America. See how poets are, are still popular over there, right? A male Russian poet or a novelist uh, doesn't need to do the same kind of stunts to prove how manly they are, like you see male American writers doing when they go on and on about boxing or baseball, or, you know, getting... It used to be physical fights, you know, like Norman Mailer punching Gore Vidal, uh, but these days more Twitter fights, uh, you know, to prove what real men they are. Though it's worth noting that the gay male American writers, like Brett Easton Ellis, don't do that so much. Uh... So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's what's uh going on here necessarily. Um but in general, it's a short book, but it felt long. I'm I'm not sure how great the translation was. I know translation's really difficult. I don't want to shit on these people who I think are are dissident type figures, right? And I think they translated and published this book to say, hey, here's what someone in Putin's inner circle is thinking. Um, I don't think it necessarily reveals that much other than, again, the Russian elite is just as capable of being navel-gazing, self-aggrandizing, pointless, gum-flappers, as any Bennington student that's ever uh, come out of my college's old soccer rival. Uh, So... Uh, that's, that's why I got, that's why I got on Sirkov. I think we'll wrap it up. Keep this one nice and short. Many thanks to the Chieftain who, uh, contributed to keeping Melendy Avenue review afloat. Uh, please consider subscribing at the citizen level, or if you want to make me do a review, uh, the Chieftain level, uh, to help keep my critical work going. It's, uh, pretty valuable to me and I think valuable to some others. So, you know, uh, I'll have some links in the show notes and yeah, that's it. Uh, have a good one, everybody. I'll uh, catch you next time. Bye-bye.